Hello and welcome. You are listening to The Investor Lab. And today, if you want to know how to achieve freedom, choice, and abundance, which is what this show is all about, just in case you don't know, uh, I am chatting with a guy named Rob Flux. Now, Rob has built a reputation as one of the go-to guys who knows loads about property development. And the reason we're talking about this today is because there are many, many different ways that you can get ahead uh, in property, wealth creation, all of that kind of stuff. Property development being one, it has some significant benefits, it has some significant risks, um, but it's something that we should discuss because as part of a a broader portfolio strategy, this could actually be something that's really going to work for you. So we dig into, you know, uh, you know, who is property, who is property development for, how can people get started, how much cash is required, what some of the returns can be, some of the biggest mistakes that property, uh, first-time property developers make, and so, so much more. So if you've ever been thinking about you know what, I'd really love to start doing some property development or I'd love to get into this or I'd love to find out a little bit more, then you're going to love this episode. Uh, It was a really good conversation with Rob. He's very uh, pragmatic, straight shooting uh, kind of guy. And so it was good to get some direct answers and and kick the can around and push some of these ideas around a little bit more. So uh, without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. But before we do, make sure you like, rate, review, share, subscribe, and give it to a family member, friend, or loved one. And of course... If you want help to build a prolific, profitable property portfolio, then make sure you reach out. Just send us an email, hello at dashdot.com.au, and we will get right back to you. All right, guys, let's get stuck into it, and I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me on today's show is a very special guest. Uh, His name is Rob Flux. He is the founder of the Property Developers Network and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I'm I'm not even going to, there's loads of stuff, but basically what you need to know about Rob is that he is the go to resource for all things property development. Uh, And so the amount of people that I know that cite having worked with you, Rob, as part of their like whole, like as a foundational piece to their whole, you know, story is phenomenal. So I'm really uh, delighted to have you on the show. So welcome. How are you? Thank you, Goose. Uh, and thank you, listeners. Uh, mate, I'm fantastic. So a uh, tiny little frog in the throat, but I promise you, you can not catch anything over Zoom. You'll be fine. Awesome. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, look, for the benefit of those listening who don't know who you are, don't know what you do, and don't know anything about you, and have never heard of you before. Why don't you give us the quick, um, quick overview? Uh, give or take thirty-two years in property. Uh, spent twenty odd years doing buy and hold. Bought my first house at eighteen. Uh, bought my first investment property at twenty-one. Owned my first house eight road at twenty-four. So kind of did twenty years of negative gearing, buy and hold. Uh, made a reasonable amount of money with that. Thought I was about to retire at 38 and regrettably got divorced at, at 37. So uh, pushed it all back into the centre of the pile and started again. Uh, and the second time round, wanted to not wait 20 years to amass the fortune and decided to go down the property development path where I could force value onto property through my own uh, skills and effort. Mm. So that's kind of the, the 30 words or less version, mate. Okay, awesome. And so, and how long have you been doing the the property development thing now? Uh, so, I've been running the property development network for uh, just on nine years, uh, but the property development side of things for about thirteen. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, cool. So, what? So, you had twenty years doing buy and hold investing. 
But I noticed you pointed out gearing. Yeah, I noticed you. I noticed you pointed. I noticed you pointed out negative gearing. So I'm interested to actually dig into this, right? So. Tell me what what didn't work. Like, because you said, like after twenty years, you know, you'd actually made a decent amount of money. If you hadn't gotten divorced, would that strategy have worked out for you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I, I'll, I'll categorically say that every strategy works, uh, but they're just different risk profiles, different speeds. Um, so it absolutely categorically works. Okay. Uh, it's just very slow, and you're at the mercy of the market. Uh, and you're also at the mercy of your borrowing capacity as, and you keep hitting glass ceilings with to how much you can borrow. Uh, so you've got to sit there and twiddle your thumbs for a while. That if, would, it, would it have been different though if you had cash flow positive properties as opposed to cash flow negative properties? So if, if you... Uh, I'm, obviously, we want to talk about property development today, right? I, I get that, but I'm very interested, right? So if you had in that 20-year period and just... You know, let's change a few of those things. But if instead of negative gearing, you had positive cash flow, right? Do you think that would have changed your experience so that when you started again, you would have gone back to a buy and hold strategy or? Uh, it would have definitely changed the rate of acceleration mm. uh, categorically, but I probably still would have gone to, I guess, an active uh, investment approach um, just because I wanted to accelerate it very fast. Okay, awesome. Well, let's dig into that. So, why? I mean, one of the one of the big concerns I think a lot of people have about property development is the risk profile. So you mentioned yourself, there's different speeds, different risk profiles, and all of that kind of stuff. And just in the same way, you know, we could go buy in a mining town, right, and get really fast growth, and that could be quick, but it's also really volatile and high risk. So, so you mentioned that you wanted to go a little faster and stuff like that. So you don't want to talk to that. Talk to talk to the speed and risk profile of development. Well, I'm going to say everything has risk. Uh, and what we're taught as a child is that crossing the road is risky, but then you're taught to look left, look right, look left again, and then you manage the risk. Uh, and so risk is just one of those things where uh, if you identify the risk and you put a management uh, process in place, then you can mitigate that. Now, you can never eliminate it. It's impossible to eliminate, uh, but you can certainly manage your way through it. Okay. So... What's your what's your view then for the average? Well, let's go back to it. Why why is it that you why is it that you felt the need to try and find a way to go faster? Why didn't you just go back to a buy and hold strategy? Because uh, I'm an impatient bastard, goose. <laughs> 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 okay, talk, let's talk talk through that journey. Talk through the second phase of your journey of your journey. Then, what happened? How did you get started? And you know what? Yep. So, yes, let's talk through that. So. Uh, I very much recognised the fact that whilst I had a lot of skills in the, uh, I guess, the passive investment approach, taking an active approach was risky, everything we just said. So I went about and paid a heck of a lot of money to go through a lot of educators out there and pretty much went to every uh, genuine educator and spruker and paid for almost every course out there. And I ended up walking away. Uh, very motivated, very inspired, uh, but not with a lot of tangible how-tos. Uh, and that was uh, somewhat frustrating with very empty pockets, having paid uh, well in excess of 100 to 120-odd K out of uh, in education. Uh, and so I got five mates around my kitchen table who had very similar experiences, and we figured none of us knew everything, but collectively we kind of uh, could fumble our way through. We started just paying it forward and helping each other in uh, each other's projects. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we started to get success and as each mate invited a mate, 
slowly we outgrew the kitchen table and then outgrew the lounge and all of a sudden I found I was running a public networking group um, which is now the largest networking group of its kind in Australia uh, with uh, just shy of 12,000 members in it. Crikey. That's that's not bad. That's, that's a not few bad. Mates. That is a that is a that is a big kitchen table. <laughs> that is a big kitchen table. So, talk to me then. Like, aside from doing it, like, how did you actually get started? What was the first project you did in in terms of development? Uh, the one that got me out uh, was a uh, I, I came across two uh, old Queenslanders that had been uh, turned into rooming accommodation. Uh, and hadn't really been done appropriately, uh, and I didn't, I didn't recognise rooming accommodation. Uh, we're talking about positive gearing here. Didn't recognise that as a uh, a strategy. Um, what I saw was the giant back up backyard where I could put six townhouses on it. Uh, as I started learning the development process, uh, I recognised that hey, I've actually got this positive cash flow as well, uh, and if I can't combine those two strategies, uh, I ended up having a, a million dollar capital growth plus about 240k of passive income uh, out of that one project so i kind of put all of the eggs uh in the in the middle all my chips in the center rolled the dice and and uh went out big bang first go so now just, i don't recommend that for can everybody I hang else, on a second because I, I noted that you said the one that got me out right so i'm assuming that's do you mean the one that like set you free so to speak right yep. or Okay, cool. So that was the that was the that was the freedom project, the one that meant you you could do what you want, when you want, with who you want, all of that kind of stuff. Is that right? Yes. Are you also implying that that was the first one you did? Correct. That's um, that is that is pretty that is pretty unique. So, um, what gave you the confidence to be able to take on a project like that, given that it was your first one? Like most people would start with something a little smaller. Um. My risk profile is probably a little uh, more aggressive than most, and I uh, would definitely not recommend everyone else do that uh, approach. Um, I I have kahunas of steel, and uh, yeah, a lot of people don't. So I can never ever recommend people do that. How 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 does this how does this risk profile and this general demeanor apply outside of property? Do you do you do skydiving? Do you do you just set yourself yes. on fire on the weekend for funds? Tell, tell us a bit about, about that. Uh, so, yes, uh, I have my skydiver's licence. Um, I can pull my own ripcord and uh, and do all that. Uh, I've uh, driven monster trucks. I've raced speedway. I've done drag racing. I am an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> okay. Got it. Got it. That paints uh, that paints it a little bit more of a, a a full picture. And so, how many how many projects have you done since then? Not that it's a not that I'm interested in the ego metrics of it. I'm just I'm just curious. Like that was such a big project. A lot of people would have said, "Hey, cool! Like I've got 250 grand in cash flow and a million bucks in in net worth or whatever." Like, why did you even bother doing any more? Or tell us. Yeah, a bit about absolutely. That. I I still do two to three projects a year. Uh, I haven't done an exact count, but it'd be somewhere in the vicinity of 25 to 30 odd projects, uh, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the lessons that I learned very fast uh, and uh, in the process is when you go out big bang and then you say, I, had, I don't have a job anymore, uh, banks treat your serviceability very, very differently. And when you go into the next one, you kind of, well, I can't do that big project again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went big first go and then I had to go back to the beginning and do small. Uh, and then grow back, grow again. So um, 
Yeah. So did, have did you find a lot it? Of did, did, did you find it really easy? To get out gracefully next time. Yeah, okay. Did you find it really easy? Like you went and like you did the black belt for your first uh, for your first development. Did it just get? Was it really boring after that, or were you still learning lots of lessons? Or no, you learn every single day. I, I learn from the members of my community. I learn mm. from uh, every project that I do. Um, I have two mentors that sit over me. My mentors have mentors. Uh, if you don't have a curiosity for learning, um, then what's the point? I, I figure if if I if my mentors have got mentors, then then I should have one. Totally, totally makes sense. And so you also you also now teach people how to develop as well, right? Correct. Okay. And how where where did that is that is that the property developers network or is that a separate thing? And when did you when did uh, you decide when did you decide that you wanted to start um, teaching others how to do it as well? Yeah. So when when we outgrew the the, the lounge room. Uh, and we went public, we had uh, 17 people at our first networking event, and it was really just trying to uh, pay it forward and see what would happen. Uh, had no agenda of turning that into a business. It was really just, hey, I wanted to, to hang around with peers that were doing the same thing that I was doing. Um, we, we ran that for several years um, at no cost, all, all directly me bearing the cost, just because I was learning as much by running the events as I was uh, uh, I guess, giving back to to everyone else. And what I found over time is, uh, and especially the process that we run, is we do a masterminding process where you go in with your problem and everyone tries to help you out. Mm-hmm. But as part of that, each person then takes their turn. And so the next person would tell you their problem and we would help them. So I'd learn about a problem I never had. And then you do that six times uh, and so I've, there's six problems that I didn't need to have. And then you do that month after month in three states um, for nine years. And uh, all of a sudden, I've got the brain the size of a planet um, with experiences that I've not necessarily had to make the mistakes of. Mm, fascinating. Okay, so what are the what are the for for those people that are thinking about getting into development or thinking about how it can augment as part of a broader portfolio strategy? What are what are the, some of the foundational things I need to be aware of? Or actually, what are some of the risks? Uh, well, I'll start with the foundational pieces, and where a lot of people go wrong is uh, being jack of all trades and master of none. Yeah, they they're not they don't get clear on their strategy. Now, every strategy works, but it doesn't work everywhere. So when you get clear on what your strategy is, then you can start to map out a roadmap of projects that will get you out gracefully. So um, I I went out big bang and I could never recommend anyone else do that. Uh, but I learned the second, you know, when I, when I lost all that serviceability, I had to do it gracefully the second time. Uh, and so I uh, have worked out a process where, we can map out a journey over the next five years where you can scale your projects as you go uh, and get out gracefully. Um, so when you understand that, you go, well, I know the strategy that I want and I know the deal size that I need to to, start, to scale me. So then where does that deal size make sense? And where does that deal size start to make profit? Uh, and we do the research to go, well, what council is that going to work in? Uh, and we start farming the areas based on that. So the strategy informs where we go. 
is it fair to say that if you're as long as you can do the right feasibility on the project it kind of doesn't matter where the project is so so and I'll, I'll give that a little bit more color right so if your strategy is to identify and part of our strategy is we, we spend a lot of money on research to identify emerging markets that's where we invest right so as a business we invest heavily in um, in in research to go okay where is going to grow right? So in that sense, if you want to get growth, it's very you've got to make sure you're entering into the right markets at the right time, all of that kind of stuff. But if you didn't have access to to the research that we've got, is it fair to say that as long as you can do the right feasibility, it kind of doesn't matter where it is? So like, could you do it in you know, it could, like, it, as long as you've got the numbers, you know, your comparables, and you can make money on the project, does it even matter where you where you're doing? Um, I'm going to say yes, it does. Because it doesn't matter how well you identify a, a site, it doesn't matter how well you run the project and how perfectly you get your feasibility right, the most important part is that somebody at the end is going to buy the property off you. Mm. So going where there is demand for your product is the most important part. Totally, but that would be uh, part of the, that would be part of the feasibility though, right? So like can you actually sell it at the end, right? So that would be so on that assumption, like let's just say that you found a tiny country town in outback New South Wales that had, you know, 500 people in it, if you could prove or disprove that the that you would make money on the project and somebody would want to buy it at the end, would that still make sense? Uh, I, I personally would never do that. Uh, and the reason for that is a tiny country town might have a total of 10,000 people. And when you're creating uh, 10 new products, you know, the, the percentage of people wanting that brand new product is just way too low. And so if you miss the market by that much, then all of a sudden you've got nobody willing to take the stock. But if you go into areas where there's massive growth uh, and if you miss the project, then at least there's going to be someone who will take the stock. So you're mitigating your risk. So you want to go where there is more population growth happening. Um, and that's part of that risk management that we're talking about. So a lot of the things that you're talking about with where you're going for growth potential, we're going there for the for different reasons, uh, but we're probably picking the same areas. Interesting, interesting. Fair enough. So, but uh, different timing. To, that that's probably the key, though, Goose. Different yeah. timing. Yeah. And so, when when is an optimal time to get into a market for a development project? Is it after it's already been growing for a while, like after proving it? Tell me about that. No, so uh, there is, uh, and I'll give some insights into probably the same processes that you're doing, uh, but from a, uh, a state government perspective, they do billions of dollars worth of research to say, well, where do we need to put hospitals? Where do we need to put roads? Where do we need to put schools? All that sort of thing. So they determine where is that population growth going and where are they going to spend those billions of dollars? And they... Mm -hmm. They push those demographics down to the local governments and say, hey, local government, you need to determine how you're going to deal with this. So we can identify those growth zones based on what the state government is doing and where they're pushing it. And, and they dictate 20 and 30 year plans as to where they're pushing people to go. Then the local government may or may not have the resources to deal with that straight away. So we look at the, the capability of that local government and say, well, what's your uh, what's your strategic plan to actually deal with this? Uh, and whether or not they've got the, the mechanisms in place to say, well, this is the growth areas and the corridors and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then we look for evidence that someone else has done it before us because we don't want to be pioneers in the market, okay? If it's Why? plenty of time, uh, plenty of room for the big boys to do that, 
Uh, I want to be the guy that comes in after the big boys have set the scene. They've proven the price points. Uh, and we've usually got a, a five to 10 year window um, inside an area where somebody has gone and broken ground and proven uh, the point, and we can farm in that area for five to 10 years. Uh, and we want to get out before before the last person turns the lights off. Mm. What do you mean before the last person turns the lights off? Well, it's some the market moves constantly. So we're we're making sure that we get out before the demand disappears. Okay. So Knowing getting, that a project takes anywhere up to two years to run, you, you've got to make sure that, you know, you're not going to be at the end of that cycle. Mm. Okay. So you're basically getting in pre pre growth, right? Is that fair to say? I'm going to say uh, at the early stages of the growth. Okay. So you're probably you're probably seeing the evidence of my guys getting in there. Oh well, well, we'll see. I think we get in there pretty, pretty, pretty early. It'd be interesting to compare some notes. So, um, what were you doing before you started doing this? Like, what was your profession? Uh, I did 20 years of IT. I was what they call a solution architect. I used to design. Uh, multi-million dollar data centers and disaster recovery solutions for BHP and Virgin and uh, Flight Center and things like that. And how do you think that that has, how do you think those skills have set you up for success in this venture? Um, it's helped massively, very transferable skills, not from the IT perspective, but from the analytical thinking and from the project management. Um, so used to run multi-million dollar projects, uh, and used to construct giant white server rooms instead of, uh, you know, instead of giant buildings. So, you know, still construction, but just different kind of construction. Mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so let's talk about returns. Like, why would anyone? Because I know, you know, using leverage and time, you can get great returns by doing nothing. Absolutely. So, why would anyone like? Why would anyone bother to develop? Because in order to get leverage and time, you need to first have a starting point. You need to be able to have a deposit in order to get into the property in the first place. That's the first part. You need to have serviceability and a deposit. A lot of people don't have that. And that, that starting point, when you are going to hold it long term, the bank really cares about the fact that you can pay it back and that there's equity in the deal. When you get into uh, property development, you can use alternative lending uh, facilities that aren't traditional bank. Uh, and because it's short term, people are actually willing to be a lot more flexible in those terms to allow you to get in and do the do the things that you need to do without traditional lending. So you can do option contracts, you can do delayed settlement with early access, you can do uh, joint ventures with the landowner, you can do joint ventures with money partners, all of these things that you can do with uh, when you've got little to no money to start with. And then you can manufacture profit which then creates the cash that you're going to want for a deposit. So have you got a and have you got a, have you got a concurrent buy and hold strategy? Uh, or do you just so do development? I, com I combine the property development with property investment. So the ultimate goal being that I I am an investor who manufactures my profit at wholesale price. Mm, okay. And so if I the stereotypical profit that most uh, developers are aiming for is a 20% profit on cost. Mm. And so if I can do a project that is large enough, then that 20% profit means I can keep a property outright. 
So how, how big is large enough? Is that like five townhouses and you keep one? Is that like the minimum size that you would do Pretty on that close. So six is the magic number. So if you do six with a 20% profit on cost, you sell five, that pays for your cost, and then the sixth one is for free. Okay, so and I'm, this is a deliberately pointed remark, but does that mean that it's not worthwhile doing like a, a splitter, like a one into two or a one into three? Is it a waste of time or why would somebody do that instead? No, it's not a waste of time. It's where you start to build the original nest egg because you need liquid cash to run deals and you also need the skills to run the project. So it's a great uh, proving ground to to build that that baseline uh, to then get in because if you if you try to do those no money down strategies everywhere, uh, not every vendor is willing to sell under those terms. And so uh, you you need to be able to have a flexibility in sometimes I'm going to pay traditionally, sometimes I do flexible. Yep. Um, but yeah. Okay. So is this do you, so? Am I hearing you correctly? Like part of the reason that people would want to get stuck into this is because maybe they don't have the capital they need to get started with their own portfolio anyway. Is that like it's a capital raising initiative? It's a, a it's one of the reasons why. Um, yeah. So one of so that's a primary. I I don't have cash to start, and a secondary is hey I've tried uh, a long term buy and hold, haven't quite got it right, didn't pick the areas, didn't get the capital growth I was hoping for. I'm ten years in, and I've gone nowhere. I'm mm. going to try an alternative approach. Okay. Now, if they were following people like yourself, that 10 years might have worked for them, um, but uh, not everyone's as smart as No, as of course. You, se- are, se- you know, 75% of, well, you know, 90, 93% of property investors never get past two properties, right? So there's obviously an issue. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, okay. Interesting. So, so if you're just getting started and you're like, hey, I just feel like I can't get, I just can't get the capital together because the market's continuously moving away from me. It's a moving target. And what can I do to accelerate that capital position so I can start to get a foothold in it? You can start to think about doing things like joint ventures and options and, and all of these kind of more creative, no money down solutions. Yeah. Um, if someone had a million bucks in cash, and just let's just assume that they've got you know sufficient borrowing capacity, whatever five million dollars in borrowing capacity. Would you suggest that they go into development or into investing, or how would you how would you approach that situation? Well, it, there's two very distinctive approaches. So, passive investment means buy it and sit back and do nothing. So, if they're willing to sit back and do nothing and travel around the world, then uh, a passive investment will still work it'll just grow at a different rate, okay? If they've got time on their hands and if they want to accelerate it really hard uh, and they've got the uh, ability to take on uh, a couple of challenges and learn the skills, then they'll go further with with property development, but it, it requires more work to do so. Yeah, and so it really comes down to is somebody willing to put the effort in um, or are they going to be, uh, I'm not going to say lazy because that's not right, uh, are they going to be a little bit more uh, hands off the process and let the market do the heavy lifting? Yeah, it's a good point. So, how much? Because a lot of the time that I've, because I've done a lot of the, a lot of the courses and all of that kind of stuff, and you, you know, there's all the, I've done, you know, a lot, of, a lot of education, a lot of these projects, you know, all these ideas, particularly around the no money down type stuff, require a lot of time, right? So they're really great for people that have got a lot of, a lot of time and not a lot of 
got a lot of capital and stuff like that. Property development in and of itself is a lot of moving parts. I've managed large construction projects in the past, so I understand what's involved in managing big projects with lots of moving parts. Is is this something that if someone who's working a full-time job can do on the side or does it require that someone burn the boat, so to speak, and throw themselves into development? Because how much time does it take? Like if you've got a project, you mentioned earlier, you know, average project takes about two years. How much, how much, time, how much time per week is it going to take? So I guess there's a very distinct difference between duration and effort. Uh, so I'm going to say 90-odd percent of the people in our, in our network are already in a full-time job, uh, and so they're putting in somewhere between uh, 5 and 15 hours a week. Um, now, our recommendation is to, to get it closer to that 15 hours a week to become regular and consistent so that you can actually put some effort in. But that's only you know hour, hour and a half per day and then a couple of hours on the weekend most of which can be done after hours. And that's all research-based to try and find out where the areas are going to be. Um, uh, and it's only a couple of hours a day once you actually found your areas where you're actually then uh, meeting with people and doing negotiations. So if you, are, if you can identify the right place, then it doesn't really take much. much. Oh, okay. Correct. Interesting. Interesting. And, um, and it's an interesting point that you made that basically if your objective is um, – you know, lifestyle freedom, for example, and you know, it, travel the world, you know, sail the sail the yacht around, you know, wh- whatever, go on holidays. If that's the if that's the goal, if you're like, if you're trying to find an exit strategy that allows you to travel around Australia with your family or something like that, this might not be the solution. However, if and I'm happy for you to rebut this as well, but I'm, I'm picking on what you say. If if you're looking for an alternative an alternative solution where you're in control of your time, energy, and effort, and all of that kind of stuff, but you still are going to have an active strategy, you basically start a business. Um, then this is kind of where this fits in, right? Uh, close. Um, I would say that they both achieve the same outcome. Okay. The difference is the effort and the duration. Uh, so definition of financial freedom firstly is enough passive income to pay your debts so first thing first is do a budget make sure you actually know uh how much you've actually got to spend and then you've got to earn enough passive income to do that hang on a second hang on a second hang on a second whoa 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 whoa. let's take a step back financial freedom is enough passive income to pay your debts correct what that doesn't what about your living expenses now that is your debts Hang on, I don't. Hang on, my groceries are not my debts, right? So yeah, they are. That's what it's. That's what it costs you to live. It, so food on the table, fuel in the car, um, pay your phone, send the kids to school, pay whatever mortgage you've got. If you've got enough passive income to pay all of that, then you don't need to work, and time is now yours. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I agree with that. I call that minimum viable life, right? So what's the what's the minimum you need to be able to? Yeah, to be able to, to be able to, you know. You know, wake up and do nothing. Not wake up and own a jet, but just like have all your costs covered. Yeah, okay. I, was just, and, I was just interested in that terminology and, used debts, but yeah, go on. And I want to comment on the jet thing because uh, too many uh, spruikers um, uh, sit on top of Ferraris or Porsches in the front of jets and uh, promote that that's financial freedom. And, and that's not. That's lifestyle, okay? So that comes after what you're calling, I guess, your minimum viable life, but mm. uh, the ability to have choices and say, I've got enough income coming through that all my debts are covered and I so I don't have to work. So I can keep eating, I can keep the exact same lifestyle as I've got today. Mm. Now, 
the irony of that uh, is that if you have a mega lifestyle, it's actually easier to become financially free than if you have a lavish lifestyle to start with. Yeah, hundred percent, right? And so, yeah, and I always think it's really interesting because um, I, have, I obviously have the benefit of talking to a lot of property investors as well. And it's like, hey, so what's what's the goal? Financial freedom. It's the same for everyone. Everyone wants financial freedom. Everyone wants to be able to do what they want when they want with who they want. No one's. This, I haven't met anyone who who doesn't want that. Um, but it's funny when you talk to some people. It's like, okay, so what does that mean to you? Some people are like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. You know, nice car, yeah. travel internationally six times a year, blah blah blah. And it's like, is that like that's that's financial obesity? That's like that's great, right? Correct. Like, like that that's great, but like that's not what you need to be able to not go to work anymore, right? Like, so the way I always like, what would be required for you to wake up in the morning, go sit on the couch, and read a book, and take your kids to school, and not have to worry about showing Correct. up to work? Um, but, but we're a, saying the same thing, yeah. But that because. As humans, uh, headspace is one of the most important things. And if we make the goal too big, uh, we don't believe that it's possible. And so we don't strive hard enough to get it. So you need to have a goal that's close enough that you can actually reach it. And then once you've reached it, then you stretch and reach for the next one. It, it, I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you because I've done all the courses where it's like, oh, you know, imagine yourself with the jet and I built the, I built the vision boards with the planes and all of that kind of stuff. And, and it was cool for maybe a month or so. And then after a while, you're like, this is all bullshit. I don't like this. Is, it doesn't make any sense. But, but I want to challenge you for a moment there because I actually think that the single biggest problem that most people face is an, in, is an inability to think big enough um, or believe I, big I, enough. I, I I actually believe that you are correct, um, <laughs> but but they need to have milestones they can correct. reach. Yeah. Okay. And so it's about it's about having an ability to measure your progress and measure your success, because when you're trying to go for something that big, it takes so long to get there that you don't um, we you don't see the traction at the start. Um, Bill Gates famously said, "We overestimate what we can do in 12 months, and we underestimate what we can do in 10 years." And when you're a year and a half in and you're not seeing the progress because it hasn't landed yet, um, a lot of people give up. Mm. And so we've got to give them something tangible where they can they can measure that progress and that keeps that gives them the belief to keep on going. Mm. Okay. So if somebody was to start out, right, and they said, All right, cool. I'm listening to this Rob guy. I'm keen. I wanna start, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a property developer. What is the and you say that it can help people go faster and stuff and I get that right and not just spitting that for a moment. What is the reasonable time frame and and I'll let you set the parameters of a starting point right. I'm not going to pretend to do that. But what is a reasonable time frame from someone to go from a standing start to I don't have to work anymore using an active strategy like property development? So assuming so the average Aussie income is about 80k a year. So if we use that as the baseline. Uh, the majority of people can get out in three to five years. Is that requisite on a starting capital amount? Nope. Okay. Do you want to talk to that for a moment? Like, if it doesn't really matter how much they're starting with, how can how do you, how do you get to that? Do you want to just? I'm interested. So it's it's about scaling your projects. Uh, so we we put our guys through a uh, a little process. We call it a five year property action plan, uh, where we map out. Okay, well. What do you need to do to actually achieve your financial freedom? How many properties do you need to own outright in order to do that? And then then let's work backwards to see what are the size project deals that you actually need to do in order to get there. Hmm. Okay. 
So if you need to get, uh, we're talking about six, so if you need to keep a property, well, you need to do a deal that's large enough to do six. So how do I start to build the skills in order to do that? And how do I get the equity for that? So you might then do a four private prior to that, and you might do a two prior to that, which comes back to you were saying before, do you start with splitters and things like that? Okay, so that's, that gives us a starting point, but it also gives us a, tra a trajectory of deal sizes so we can step up and step up. Now, the, the first part is the skills to do it. The second part is the money to do it. Mm. Okay, so your development strategy, what you're actually doing, the, the, the rules on, under which you're doing it is one thing, but then you've got an acquisition strategy. So your acquisition strategy is to say, well, how do I have to be creative right here, right now, given my limited resources and the requirements of the vendor trying to sell me the deal. And so that becomes tactical. Every single time you go into a deal, you go, well, how much money have I got in my pocket? How much money have I got sitting in the bank? And what does that vendor need uh, in order to get out of that transaction? And so you can uh, rummage through your toolbox and go, look, I've got all these no money down strategies that sit here. Can one of them apply in his particular circumstance? Now. No money down is a marketing term. I'll be brutally honest on that. Money's required, okay? I'm not going to pretend money's not required, but it doesn't have to be your money. And if we get creative with our terms, we can sometimes defer and sometimes avoid costs altogether. Mm. And so it's just a matter of understanding, well, which, which set of terms allows me to defer and which set of terms allows me to avoid. And if I can combine a couple of those together, then sometimes I can get stuff done with not much at all. Mm. Yeah. And liquid cash becomes more important. The actual cash to pay the consultants and get the approvals, the liquid cash becomes way more important than anything else. So how much does it cost for those kind of professional services? Like if you were to go into it, how much sort of cash do you need to have in the back pocket to pay liquid to be able to cover those kind of things? 50 grand, 100 grand? Uh, as a starting project, probably around the 100K mark. Um, as you start to progress in your deal sizes, uh, it could get up towards 200, 250. Interesting. Interesting. So what, where, where do people go wrong? Because I know that I know uh, there's been a lot of people who have tried to develop and have stuffed it all up. Like, uh, where, where's the biggest, where do they make the biggest mistake? What's the number one thing? The, I guess say number one mistake is they're not clear on their, uh, on their um, strategy. They're not clear on their deal size. Uh, and and they get a thing called bright shiny objectitis. Okay, mm. so they see, hey, somebody over here is doing really well. Um, I'm going to do what they're doing, and then they get halfway along to learning that process and farming that area, and then they see someone else do another deal, and they go, well, that looks good too. I'm going to jump track, and I'm going to go over there, and so they become jack of all trades and master of none. Okay, and when you start to do that, if you, you start to look at how many things I'm looking at how deeply you look at them is very, very narrow. Okay, well, and now if you spin that on its head, and if I look at one thing, I can now look at it very deep. Mm. Um, and so our guidance is one strategy. Now, if you choose that strategy, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's subdivisions, whether it's townhouses, whether it's units, complexes, doesn't matter. That one strategy there are 537 councils in Australia, so there's 537 different ways of doing that one strategy. So we now say choose one, one council. 
And so now you can get really good at what my strategy is. And you get really good at the rules under which I'm going to be measuring it. So you can get really good at that feasibility. And then what we're touching on a little bit earlier was where does that work? Where are, Where's the population going? We just go to improve that somebody else has done the deal before us to make sure that we're not pioneering the ground. And then we can sit in that area and farm it out for, for enough years to, to get ourselves out. Mm-hmm. Okay. You said that it doesn't really matter which strategy you pick, but surely some are better than others. Uh, what is the most important thing, Goose, is that the strategy you choose is scalable. Okay. Uh, so there's only there's only really uh, two strategies that are scalable. Okay. And what I mean by scalable is if you do a renovation, then you can make some money, absolutely. But then to go do another renovation, you can only do one of them. Okay. But if you do a subdivision, you can do a one into two to start, then you can do a one into three, then a one into four, and using the same skills over and over and over, and eventually you can get to a point where you scale. Um, you any... can do the same with multi-res. So whether it be units or townhouses, you can do the same sort of thing and scale. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, is there is, fundamentally, is there much of a difference strategically or outcome-wise between doing a, an apartment block or a unit block versus um, townhouses or or anything like that from your perspective? So the rules under which you do townhouses and apartments are fundamentally the same rules. The difference is, do you scale out or do you scale up? Okay. Um, so different construction methods, uh, but the the rules that council are going to measure you against are going to be fundamentally the same. Mm. Um, but town, uh, if you do that, so that I call that multi-res, uh, subdivisions is a slightly different approach. Um, if you compare the subdivision path versus the multi-res path, um, you have a little bit more flexibility with the subdivision because you can choose to exit some as land and you can choose to exit some as house and land. You can choose to, to exit some as a finished product, as a house. Uh, whereas with uh, a multi-res, you either build it or you don't and you have to build everything or nothing. Um, and so there's a, a little bit less flexibility, uh, but when the money comes in using those multi-res, it comes in like a fire hose. Mm. Okay. Now, as you mentioned, the first project you did kind of got you out, right? So you don't have to you don't have to do any of this anymore. What, what what's the goal? Like why why what what's the goal? Where are you where are you trying to get to? Um. Well, as you said, I've achieved my goal. Uh, so I've reset my goals to be less monetary focused. Uh, and more about giving back and, and legacy focused. So I'm uh, wanting to set 1,000 people financially free. That's my goal and my objective because what I've found in this process is I get a lot of um, personal satisfaction in seeing other people succeed because it's very lonely at the top of the mountain, right? So uh, I'm happy to not be at the very top but come down a little bit and bring a few people up and we can sit somewhere near the top. Um, I don't need all the money. Um, Happy to share that amongst a few others. <laughs> cool, cool, fair enough. What's the um? I'm interested. Do you do? You said you like uh, learning and education. You do you read much? No, I'm uh, I'm partially dyslexic, um, and so uh, a lot of mine my worldly skills comes from actually going out and doing it. Okay, the, where the do school you, of hard knocks. Okay, where do you draw inspiration from? Like, where? How do you? What? Where do you get your stimulus from? What? Where? Yeah, tell me about that. Um, 
So I won't say that I never read, but um, but it's uh, a very slow process. So, um, but a lot of the old school books, um, you know, so you think and grow rich, uh, those sorts of um, uh, rich dad, poor dad, they're the, they're the foundational pieces that is all that you really need to go, okay, I've got the right mindset. Um, so I concentrate more on the mindset side of things because that's our biggest limit, our biggest handbrake to our success mm. is our belief that we can actually do it. Agreed. We keep putting obstacles in front of ourselves and they're our, our own obstacles. Agreed. Agreed. You, okay. You, you look at the biggest developers out there, whether they be uh, Mervac or, um, or Lendlease or uh, any of those guys, they had to start with deal number one. Right, there's no reason why you can't get that big if you really wanted to, but you've got to start with deal number one. Is there a reason? Because I I really like um uh Harry Triggerboff, right? His his story about you know how he started and things like that. A lot of people um a little while ago, I saw there was a bunch of people kind of. I think there was a politician that was bagging him out for you know having too many pools or I don't know, basically you know. Uh, bashing the wealthy, which hey, look, you know, equitable income distribution and and social equality, I'm I'm massively for it. However, I thought it was very interesting that you know Harry's uh, Harry's stories. He just did that. He started with one project, and and now look, is there a re- you know are you are you planning to like try and go to billionaire status with it? And if not, why not? Like no. why 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 isn't that part of your? If you know that you could go there, why why is that not part of your? Destiny, destiny. Because money doesn't buy happiness. Um, Buys jets, though, and jets. I see a lot of smiling people standing in front of jets. So yeah, but um, (laughs) so I I like to think of the property developer network as a a drinking club with a property problem. Um, So all of our events are at uh, pubs and clubs and that sort of thing, and the social aspect afterwards uh, is as important as the event itself. Uh, and so the after meeting meeting goes for as long as the meeting. Uh, and so it's it's the legacy that I leave behind. The people that turn up to my grave is my point of measure, uh, not how many toys are sitting on the shelf. Makes sense. Have you got any uh, final things you might want to throw in there? Anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask that you might be able to uh, share with the listener before we wrap it up? Um, a tidbit, when we when we talk about low or no money down deals uh the tidbit would be control the property don't own it yeah i like that i like that it's good and if people wanted to find out more uh about you if they wanted to get in touch if they wanted to tap into the property developers network if they wanted to start to learn from you where do they go uh so they can just google developer network uh we are on facebook we're on youtube we run meetup events um we, we pretty much own the first two pages of uh, of google so that'll get you there straight away uh but the website is called developernetwork.com.au awesome rob thanks so much i really appreciated the chat and uh and the opportunity to kind of kick the can around and pressure test a few things as well so thanks so much well good thanks goose